Welcome to the Sport Mind podcast series, where I sit down with world-leading guests and unlock the secrets to mental strength in sports. Today, before you dive into the episode, I have something special for all listeners. Are you struggling with self-doubt, overwhelmed by performance anxiety, battling inconsistency, or facing fear of failure in your sport? Are you looking to overcome these obstacles and conquer the mental game? Well, I've got just the toolkit for you. An ebook I wrote called Overcoming the Top 10 Mental Obstacles in Sport, which you can get today completely free of charge. This comprehensive ebook is a treasure trove of practical and actionable strategies tailored for athletes who want to unblock the most common mental obstacles. Each chapter offers digestible advice, providing immediate tools you can apply to enhance your mental game. Readers have been raving about the insights and the transformations they've experienced with this guide. Teresa from California emailed recently saying, your guide is brilliantly helpful. I've just been getting into it and I'm truly excited to use it to help with the obstacles I face regularly. I wrote this ebook to be concise, punchy, and most importantly, practical for immediate application. And the best part, it's completely free, a token of your commitment to your mental and athletic growth. So click on the link in the show notes right now to grab your copy of Overcoming the Top 10 Mental Obstacles in Sport, or simply visit the SportMind Hub by Googling SportMind Hub. Equip yourself today with the knowledge and tools to face those mental challenges head on. Now, let's jump into today's episode and get ready to elevate your mental game to the next level. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome to your next episode of the podcast series. I'm delighted to introduce my special guest for today, Dr. Mitch Green, a clinical and sports psychologist with over 20 years of experience. Dr. Green has an impressive background working with athletes, coaches, and teams at every level, all seeking to improve their performance and mental health. He's the man behind Green Psych, a mental health practice where he and his team apply research interventions like CBT, mindfulness, acceptance and commitment therapy, and injury recovery expertise in order to create holistic treatment plans for high-performing athletes. A prominent figure not only in the consulting room, but also on the field. Dr. Green is often spotted at triathlons and running events, where he's either competing or offering guidance as a psych on a bike. And for those of you looking for a good read, he's just published a captivating book that delves into the fear and self-doubt or mind chatter, which plagues athletes and hinders their peak performance. During our discussion, we've had a chance to dig into the fascinating insights from his book, Courage Over Confidence. Dr. Green shared his four-step process designed to help athletes manage their mind chatter. We discuss common mental hurdles athletes encounter, such as losing momentum after a small error, the stress of comparing oneself to competitors, the crippling fear of failure, and the anxiety around inconsistency in performances. We also explore how athletes could use Dr. Green's model to navigate these challenges. But that's not all. We also ventured into some practical strategies, like how athletes can begin practicing these techniques before they face the high-pressure situations of competition. We spoke briefly about the role of visualization and mental training, and whether meditation and mindfulness tools can enhance athletic performance. Stay tuned for an enlightening conversation that promises to change the way you think about sports psychology. However, I do want to apologize for any brief interruptions or signal drops we experienced during the recording. There may be a few places where the message got lost, but I assure you the insights shared by Dr. Green are invaluable. So without further ado, let's dive into the show with Dr. Mitch Green. 
Dr. Mitch Green, welcome to the next episode of the podcast series. Really kind of you to be here today. You shared with me this is your first appointment since seven to 10 days of COVID. So I think we might have to have a little quick chat about that, but always a good place to start. If you could maybe just introduce yourself and what your role currently entails. Sure. Thank you, Jesse. I'm happy, to, really happy to be here, especially after the seven to 10 days. And if my voice sounds a little raspy, that's um, that's why. Um so I'm a psychologist. I have a clinical psychology degree, a PhD in clinical psych from Temple University here in Philadelphia. But for the past 20 or so years, I've been specializing in sports psychology, uh, which means, as you know, and your audience probably knows, I work with athletes and coaches and teams on both performance uh, areas of concern and then on mental health mm-hmm. areas of concern as well, given my kind of dual background. I own a private practice here in the main line of Philadelphia, which, as you know, it's one of the hotbeds of of squash. And I have a small boutique practice. I have a few people who work alongside me and we all pretty much do do the same thing, see people individually and work with groups and teams. Amazing. And um, listen, there's obviously a lot more to unpack than that. You're being obviously super humble about your journey and where you've got to and some of the elite performers that you that you work with. But let's maybe explore a little bit of your your timelines that, you know, your background didn't start in sports psychology. How did you become so involved with sports psychology and, and really leading the field in this in this area? You know, I, I always uh, um, had an interest in sport from my own playing days. And I went to graduate school really having no idea what area of psychology I thought I might I might mind up working in. Mm-hmm. Um, and I tell the quick story in the book about um, my following uh, this guy, Chuck Knobloch, who was a professional baseball player for the New York Yankees, who had a major mental breakdown out in front of the world playing second base for the New York Yankees when he couldn't throw the ball 10 feet accurately seemingly at seemingly out of nowhere wow but and that experience was one that i talked a lot about with my professors kind of on the side i was trying to read about it as much as i could about what this whole mental block thing was all about in sport i was always intrigued and then there was an opportunity after about 10 years of doing a straight clinical practice where i had a choice about where i wanted my career to go and that non-block experience never left me and I thought, you know, what's what goes on in this world of sports psychology, which was something I didn't know about. I met with a professor at Temple named Michael Sachs, who's a, a well-established and esteemed professor who took me under his wing, mm-hmm. invited me to go to a, a conference down in Florida. And I walked out of that conference and I just immediately knew, okay, I could do this because I had the clinical background and um, I had a lot to learn about the sport piece of it. But I thought I could learn that along the way. Mm. And um, I slowly started to change my private practice from all clinical clients to leaving openings for sport clients. And instead of meeting with guidance counselors at school, I was going in and meeting with the athletic department or the athletic directors. And I really didn't know what I was doing at the beginning, (laughs) um, but fumbled around enough and asked enough questions and did enough of my own study that... uh, I really changed my, you know, I did a whole 180 and had a whole new career that I developed. Amazing. And and there's there's a few little parts that I want to unpack. Firstly, um, what was your main sport? What did you play when you were growing up? I was a lacrosse and basketball player mm-hmm. um, growing up. Um, 
and very competitive on very competitive teams. And um, when I got into graduate school, I couldn't easily find a basketball game or a lacrosse game. Certainly I got into running, um, marathon running. I've run about 10 marathons now and, okay. and then got into triathlon through some friends of mine. So right as this was all happening, I was really heavily involved in running and triathlon mm -hmm. and was like able to talk about these ideas with some of my running mates and some of my, you know, triathlon people in my triathlon community. And um, I think that was also a big part of it. I got to really mm. practice what I was preaching out there when I was going into open water, you know, swimming a few miles and had all kinds of chattery thoughts going through my head. And um, uh, so uh, I still try to stay very active in like mm -hmm. adventure racing and weightlifting and things like that. So I, I, yeah, I still try to stay active. And that's so interesting, obviously, like now that you're obviously really specialized with the sports side of things, you know, I'm sure you've reflected back at, at your younger self. And, and you know, if you could have had some of these tools that you talk about now for your younger self, I assume your performances and your ability to calm that chatter down would have been on a, a much higher level, yeah? I think so. I, I think so. I, I think I actually um, wasn't terribly chattery as a competitive athlete. Okay. Um. Uh, I, and I don't think many around me were, I think it was just a very different day and age. Not that people weren't back then. Mm -hmm. Um, but I purely love the game. I love to play. I saw when I got on the field, it was like a, it was time away from the stress of sure. the day. This is when I was sort of in my high school days. Mm -hmm. Um, yes. But when I got older and started competing in triathlon and swimming and stuff, which is something I never did as a youngster, that is when I had to manage my own chatter. Um, and absolutely helped me help other people manage chatter <laughs> totally. as I was trying to figure out on my own. But an interesting quick story, our lacrosse team back in high school, which was a very high level, um, had a sports psychologist come and talk to us, which was completely radical back then because there really nobody even knew of sports psychology. But our coach was friends with a guy named Nate Zinzer, who's now at West Point, okay. um, who just recently wrote a book, actually. He was doing his dissertation research on sports psychology and used our team as his data. Oh, nice. So we had this guy, Dr. Zinzer, talking to us when I was just like a teenager, long before anybody had heard of sports psychology. And I think that impacted me as well because he took a very good team and helped us, you know, I think get even better. Um, the big mantra we used was one goal down. We were okay. often up by a lot and then a team would come back because we would get complacent. And he was working with us on always sort of approaching the game that we were always down by a goal. We always needed one goal to tie it, so to speak, even mm. if we were up by five. And that mentality spread throughout the team, the leaders of the team. I wasn't one of them, but some of the leaders of the team grasped onto what Dr. Zinzer was talking about and helped us all kind of like adopt that attitude. So I was Love exposed that. in this interesting way early on. Yeah. Yeah. That's wicked. And then, so a couple of things there, you said something really interesting. So firstly, there was, there's quite big impact that you heard from this psychologist coming in. And like, like you said, it was very maybe taboo back in the day. And if you're seeing a psychologist, there's something mentally wrong with you and you shouldn't be doing that. And I think right now it's exactly the opposite. It's like, Hey, I'm proud and aware it as a badge of honor, but you yeah. said something super interesting. I want to just drill into um, where you said maybe back in the day, whatever, 15, 20 years ago, that chatter might not have been a thing, but maybe it's more so in the modern world. And, and it's a question I've got maybe a little bit later, the idea of the, the, the 
overly inflated expectations of sport and, and sport and fun yeah. might not be the same thing anymore. Like sport can be seen as this job at such a young, early age. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. Yeah, I do think it's absolutely a different, it's different in all the ways that you have alluded to, which is um, uh, not that there weren't parents back then who put lots of pressure on their kids and that it's not as if there were kids who didn't want to get recruited and go play in college, but that wasn't sort of hanging over us. And I was at a very competitive academic and athletic institution. It wasn't hanging over us. There was, there was nobody really telling you to specialize in one sport. I played all different sports, as did all of my friends, including those who got recruited. So I do think things have changed a great deal over the year in terms of sports specialization, obviously in terms of the role social media has been playing. Um, and this sort of um, uh, idea, yes, that if you um, and th that if you want to get good, the only way to get good is to play year round and um and that if you're not good at that particular sport, uh, maybe you need to find a new one. I, I have these young kids and parents who say to me these days that, you know, if their kid's 10 years old and they haven't like mastered their sport at 10, that maybe that's not the right sport for them. Maybe they need to switch because, you know, the sister found that sport to be their sport and everyone needs to have their sport to like hang their hat on. And um mm it didn't come with that kind of expectations. You're right, Jesse. Yeah. Back then. And, um, and I don't think it's just here in this country. I think it's in yours as well. Yep. Totally. Where totally. Everything starts younger and sooner mm. and the stress level is, has been through the roof. Mm. And it, it, it's a tough one, isn't it? Because you see, you know, I think we all admire the Tiger Woods of this world and, you know, the, the, the early specializers, but they get, you know, aggrandized so much. And, and that's the poster boy. It's like, that's that's the definition of success. And, you know, the Malcolm Gladwell yeah. 10,000 hour rule, and you've heard stories of parents ticking the hours off and all these kind of crazy things. And it just doesn't sit right for me personally, but also maybe for you, it's getting that balance, isn't it? And it's it's hard because- you do see these posters of these amazing athletes and, and it's a bit of confirmation bias. What about the 99.9% .9 who haven't made it? So again, I, I don't know the answer, but that's probably what we might even unpack a bit today as we talk. Yeah. I, I feel like I try to play my own sort of small, very, very small role in trying to help these kids and these families navigate these really choppy waters for a lot of these kids where they're, their sport becomes their life where their entire identity is sort of wrapped up in, in whether they perform well or not. And sometimes it's not the parents, sometimes it's just the kids, but sometimes it's both the whole family sort of wrapped up in it. Mm. And in fact, in the world of squash, maybe more than other sports, I have found myself working more with the families, not just with the kids when, when the situation is right for it, because mm. Uh, it seems to be one of these sports where there's a, a heavy addiction factor to the whole, not just to the sport, but to the, you know, to squash online, to the ladders, to the rankings, to the ratings. And and um, I find the best interventions I could do are often with the entire family, not just 
the kids themselves mm. when I'm working with kids. Mm. Makes sense, isn't it? Because it's that support network. It's the message that that child is receiving at the constant, you know, is it is it the win at all cost message that's coming across and why didn't you perform well when you lost bad? Or is it more leaning into the growth mindset or or, or finding, you know, mastering your yeah. craft type idea, which I think, yeah, yeah, and only that can come from that support network and, and the parents in particular, can't it? Yeah, I think a lot of the parents are are just unaware that they're talking out of both sides of their mouth when they talk to the kids, because on the one hand, they're telling them, just go out there and, you know, have fun. On the other hand, at the dinner table, they're laying out who their kid's going to be playing in the next tournament if they make it to the semifinals and how that young guy or gal did against opponents that their son or daughter may have faced. And they're unaware that, that that's just sort of layering on uh, added pressure for these kids. Um, uh, so if I can help educate the parents, which a lot of them just need some education around about where their messages are, are conflicting with one another, mm -hmm. um, about maybe thinking about playing a little bit of a different role in support of their kids. Um, uh, I find it can be really helpful for, for everybody because sometimes the parents need coaching as well because they're, they're stuck. They don't know any other way to do it. Um, and think that they're helping, but sometimes are again unwittingly hurting, hurting, yeah. hurting yeah. the situation. And that's the thing. It comes from such a such a good place, doesn't it? A place of love and and wanting to whether it's a motivation thing or trying to reduce the pressure. But 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 again, they're not experts in the field. And with speaking with someone like yourself, yeah. they can change their language a little bit. And you know that leads me beautifully onto onto your book, which I I, I bought, I read, I consumed in a very short space of time. Really simple, powerful message. And I definitely want to unpack parts of this with you because so much of it is about the chatter, the chatter in the mind, and 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 what's happening. And the book is called Courage overconfidence, which we'll talk about that title because that comes, I think, in the fourth step of your your four-step model. Um, so like I alluded to, there's there's this four-step model. And I'd I'd love if we could maybe unpack it, what what it how you can interpret it to the listeners. And I might have a few rabbit holes we might dive down as we as we talk. Yeah, well, thank you for that endorsement. I appreciate it. Um the book came out of these conversations that I've been having for years with athletes around and coaches around um, the doubts and the second guessing and the negative thinking that was sabotaging these athletes best efforts that they and all their training that they had been putting in. And I, I stuck with the idea of the term mind chatter because I started using it years ago and I would find that athletes would come back to my office even after just one meeting and they'd be saying not and without any real instruction about what to do with the mind chatter. But they'd say, oh, my mind chatter was really bad, but then I scored and then all of a sudden my mind chatter was like kind of disappeared or I was good in this game, but all of a sudden my mind chatter reappeared. They were using the term that I had just thrown out there okay. because, and there was something about that term that seems to really stick. And over the years, I guess I've developed a methodology to help the nervous, jittery, anxious, fearful player um, manage those doubts that, as you know from my book, are kind of inevitable mm -hmm. when you're playing in a high stakes kind of environment. And for a lot of the young guys and gals, of course, during the week, the practice week, when they're ghosting or they're drilling or they're doing practice matches, they're just not having as much chatter, generally speaking. And all of a sudden, it comes flooding in at that Friday night match 
and they're totally left unprepared. They're prepared physically, but they're not prepared mentally um, for for what the mind is is up to. So mm-hmm. I I kind of frame it with my athletes and Jesse and, and with my families. I like to turn like good athletes, good players into great competitors. Like that. Because I think what hap- what I'm sort of teaching is how to be a competitor, which means from the mental point of view, obviously, which is how to compete, understanding that when you're competing, that you may have one agenda, but that there's a chattery voice behind the scenes that that often has another one. And being a great competitor means knowing what to do with that extra voice. Mm. And it's it's interesting that word competitor. I I I talk a lot about trying versus effort. And, and this is my very simple, you know, man on the street definition. Trying is the physical act of the thing you're doing. Your body's moving in space and to the untrained observer, you look like you're you're in that arena. But but effort is the body and the mind in the same place at the same time. So, you know, when you say competing, I'm assuming you're you're talking about the, the, the mental fortitude of being present, overcoming those obstacles in the mind, not just the body moving through space. Am I kind of accurate with that? Or yeah, what, what I think so. I guess well, I think of it more like when there's something on the line, you know, when now, you know, there's, there's usually not much on the line during a practice week, relatively speaking, mm-hmm. but come the weekend JCT, um, there's all kinds of things now on the line. And then I think of that in that way, just more mm. the con, I guess I think of more of the context, the context of being in a tournament setting yeah. where rankings can go up and down, where there's stakes, where the kids feel as though the stakes are high. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where makes professionals feel like the stakes yeah. Yeah. Are. Yeah. And listen, any sport as well, this is transferable as, as you know, you all know. So I'll, I'll kind of test myself. Yeah. Um, Point number one, I believe it's accept the chatters there. Point two, it's make space for the chatter. Three is about, let me get this right, it's about setting the actionable goals. And four, I believe, is the courage over confidence. Is Does that encapsulate the, the methodology you use? Because, yeah. Yeah. And it, yeah, the first one is more expecting than accepting. Not that okay. accepting isn't part of this whole four-step process. Mm-hmm. And I actually think it's made, you know, you could argue they're all important, obviously, but I I would say maybe it's the most powerful one, arguably, I guess, in that I think a big part of what my time with my athletes is spent talking about is, is the fact that come that Saturday tournament, it's not like, what do you do if you have chatter? It's like, what do you do when you have chatter? Mm. And it's only Tuesday, but you could probably tell me, Mr. or Miss Athlete, what your chatter is going to say on that Saturday when you're facing so-and-so in, you know, at 1 PM and they go, Oh yeah, I have, I, I really do know what it's going to say. Um, and I, historically, a lot of the athletes try to avoid thinking about the chatter. They try to block it out. They try to hope it's not there. Um, and as you know, from the book, my approach is wholly different than that. Mine is actually saying let's, which is the second step, let's make room for it let's Mm -hmm. let's actually anticipate it and the athletes i work with come to learn that the that the chatter isn't as dangerous as they think it is that they could actually still kick butt on the court even if their chatter has something to say about it Mm -hmm. and this whole idea of expecting it and not trying to get rid of it is a game changer for athletes it's a game changer absolutely i'm not saying it always turns out that then they go on and they win and there's nothing more to think about. Of course, it's not that simple, but 
but it's one less huge weight, I think, on their shoulders that they think there's something wrong with them. And I talk a lot about it, this book, or they feel great shame that they're a wimp, that they're the they're the one athlete who um, who can't seem to get confident when they're supposed to be confident because they've been playing so well in practice. So I try to get rid of all that shame and 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 name calling um, by having them actually anticipate it. And then we go through some strategies to how to mm. kind of let it be so it will let them be. Yeah, beautifully put. And I, I love the idea where you make space, but almost as like your passenger, you, you can, again, maybe paraphrasing a bit of what you say, you, you almost can have like quite a lighthearted kind of inner voice with yourself. Oh, there you are, chatter. Hello, you're back again. Welcome. Come take a seat next to me. We're on this journey, but I can't get rid of you. And, you know, maybe you're on this long road trip and what type of passenger do you want on that road trip? And I think, like you said, I understand why you say it's one of the most powerful because it's the first domino. If that first domino falls in the right direction, the other that's dominoes right. can, can can follow, can't they? Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Yeah. That's, that's exactly right. And I think because it tends to be so different than what the athlete is typically, how they're typically approaching the situation also is sometimes the most powerful part of what I, what I have to offer. And, and yeah, mm -hmm. once they, now a lot of athletes, now these are easy concepts to talk about, but hard concepts, I think very much to grasp. And so I, I spent a lot of time with athletes, making sure they don't feel pressure from me thinking now they have to go in the tournament, like nail this in, in some way where they're like, Oh, going to make room for it. And then they're just going to be free as a bird and in the zone. And I, you know, I, I, I talked to them about, you know, if they could get 10% better at this or 15% better than this or catch themselves, you know, more times than not hearing the chatter and not just getting caught up in its dialogue, mm -hmm. you know, small little gains like that are realistic because these are such different concepts for many mm. people. That's really well said. And it's something I, I didn't really pick up on until you said it there. It's like, you know, we, we could sit here and you could sit with a client and they could probably leave your room feeling a million dollars. And they're like, I got I'm so clear what I need to do. As that pressure moment hits, it's like, poof, and then all of those things you've worked on, all those strategies just disappear. And it's a really beautiful way you talk about maybe just the incremental gains of, you know, putting those little drops in the bucket mentally, how that can start to improve themselves. Yeah, Jesse, it's a squash client that I could, I could vividly picture in my head, a very high level young woman who went on to play very high level at an Ivy League school and was very successful. She was the best, one of my greatest teachers because she didn't really know it at the time, but uh, we, cause she did that very thing. She had left a, she had left a session or two, like uh, me feeling and she feeling as though she totally got it. And she invited me to come watch her play at a local tournament. And there she came up to me 15 minutes before her match, pale as a ghost, breathing so heavy. And it was such a, <laughs> I was felt terrible for her. And of course mm -hmm. there was really nothing much, I could say in the moment that was going to dial back her nervous system that quickly, mm -hmm. but I learned a lot of lessons there. It was very humbling, which is, which is for me to not to expect that people are going to just leave and grasp this and, and they could just turn it on and turn it off at will. And so I learned a lot from her um, in working with clients about setting expectations about yeah. how you're going to leave and how you're going to be able to apply this and where you could apply this. And I, and I think what's beautiful about one of the things I love about the work that I do is it's, it's collaborative. I'll say to them, like, what do you think? Like, 
how much of this do you think is realistically you can implement? Like mm. what's, and then we always poke holes in it. Like any good psychologist or mental coach will do. I go, okay, this is great. So what's going to screw this whole thing up, mm-hmm. you know? And sometimes you'll hear, well, if so-and-so comes up to me and tells me there's no way I can lose this match, you know, you're totally going to smoke them. That could screw me up or, mm-hmm. or this, or if I forget to eat or if I, mm. so we go through it and I always want to just sort of set some realistic expectations about it and um because it is easier said than than done yeah. absolutely mm, that's yeah. such an easy thing because on, on that you know and I'm, I'm always you know that pressure and context is always quite quite interesting and you know that kind of semi-cheesy but quite appropriate navy seals quote you know you don't rise to the level of your expectations you sink to the level of your habits and behaviors when you're under pressure and i think that's a good message isn't it because you know yes you could yeah. have three amazing sessions with yourself and your expectations are now here but your habits of practicing the ability to manage the chat are still down there. And it's actually yeah. going to take time to actually raise that level of your habits, isn't it? And, and I quite like coming back to that quote, because it reminds athletes, this is, this is a long game, isn't it? It's not like this immediate instant gratification that we become so used to. Uh, absolutely. And occasionally people will have a pop, you know, they'll get a pop from a session because it's so interesting and they're able to, you know, get a, get a good kind of like get hit the ground running. But as you said, oftentimes it just takes some deliberate practice. And sometimes I have athletes, I think I mentioned this in the book, they think because they played that tournament and everything went so well, like now they've kind of got it. Yeah. And so they don't, you know, they don't need to do it anymore as if, you know, as if um, they don't need to work on their mental game. And sometimes they quickly realize it needs consistent attention, mm-hmm. um, particularly because the better you get, the higher ranked players times because now you've got to play like a number two seed mm-hmm. um uh you know and um whereas you were playing as a number 12 seed there wasn't as much people expecting as much of you now people are expecting you to make it to the finals or something like that so mm, totally. it's a it's um part of the competition picture as you obviously know mm-hmm. not just some extra thing for those who are you know a little bit weak-minded Mm. And it is it's that, that 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 stinger of human nature, isn't it? Like once you achieve something, you're like, yep, I got this people like I can just sit in the back seats now and just just like free wheel down the highway. And as we know, as soon as yeah. you get into that, that doesn't work. And the other thing that I like to talk about, I'd like to hear your view on this is the lag effect. So someone crushes it at a tournament, right? And it's often they think, oh, what did I, what did I eat that morning? Or what did I, what was my warm up process? And it's like, you know what, if you're crushing it now, it's probably what you were doing six months ago. That's led to this moment. You know, there's the odd pop, as you said, but you know, often people think, right, the magic happened here. What did I do immediately before that? But actually we got to dig deeper than that, don't we? Yeah. And I actually think that's sort of the fun part of, of the job and the interesting part, as you said, which is it's it's never just one reason why they play well. It's not just their mental game and it's not just their physical game. It has, it has a lot to do, as you said, with their their training and, and their coaching and 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 their families and their who their opponent is or isn't. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, uh, yes, I think I think there is a lag effect and. Uh, and sort of in a related point that's on my mind is just when when these concepts can be brought into the practice um, arena, when coaches can find ways to use some of the, I have more and more coaches, it's exciting, who are sort of saying, we want to use this sort of as a book for our team, where we could all sort of have a shared language. And even in challenge matches or practice, some practice sessions, 
kind of having people be aware of what the mind is saying and how to let it go. And, and um, because like you, I don't want them to think that they're just going to get to a tournament and be able to just mm-hmm. sort of turn it on and turn it off like a light switch. It does take some fam- more familiarity with it and trying to use it in settings other than just, you know, when the tournament happens. Yeah, totally. That will speed I- up the growth, I think. Mm-hmm. And I think kind of towards the end, I want to maybe get into so kind of away from the practice or away from the performance environment, which could be quite interesting. But that's exciting news for you that I, you know, the 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 shared language of teams using that book, and yeah, rightly so. And you know, I'll I'll champion it for you, even a tiny audience here. But you You're know, very kind. I, no, not at all matters. Well deserved. So maybe drilling into that third point of your four point model that that you reference in the book, the idea of the actionable goals, and and you know, for me, the idea of separating out controllables versus non controllables. Can you expand on that a little bit? And, and how do you get the athletes to, to buy into that? Because that's a hard one, is it? Because it's kind of like, yeah, I've obviously played well if I've got the results above my expectations and I play terribly if I don't get the results, but that's out of our control. Actionable versus, yeah. you know, performance goals. Yeah. What thoughts there? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's a, the way I look at it, I don't think it's a hard concept for them to understand, but it is a very hard concept to put into action, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. um. So I do spend a lot of time with these at, with my athletes, um, reminding them that um, the big goal is always to win um, up here, um, win the match, um, get as many points as you can, um, but that they can't directly control whether that happens or not. I mean, if they could, they'd never lose. <laughs> and they quickly... <laughs> Understand that nobody never loses. I know that's a double negative. Nobody never loses. And so, um, and the other thing I teach them about, which is, and it's in the book, is how the more they tend to focus on what might happen at the end of the match, whether they win or lose, uh, the more they're feeding into what their chatter wants to wants to talk about with them. Mm-hmm. So yeah. if you're down 6-2 in the first as you obviously know and work with your athletes, you know, we want to be thinking about how to get to six, three, but the mind and chatter is interested in, if you keep this crap up, you'll never win three games mm-hmm. and he's going to, or she's going to beat you. So you want to, how do you want to be here where your mind is already here at the end of the match, thinking about what maybe could might go wrong mm-hmm. um, for you. So um, how do you get from six, two to, hopefully six, three to hopefully six, four, you, you know, what's it going to take? How are you going to do that? Gets us into the conversation about, about their skill and their strategy that they tell me about, you know, they tell me what they and their coaches have been working on. I'll say, if your coach was in the office with us right now, what would he or she say are the two most important things that you should be focusing on Mm-hmm. Because when you do these things well, you tend to be kind of a dangerous player. Mm. And for some athletes, they tell you that without even thinking about it. Some go, I, you know, some are out, have no idea. They're like, mm. I don't even know what anyone, I don't even know. So you have to get them thinking about it and taking some time or maybe going back and asking their coaches, mm. you know, some are just not dialed in in that way, mm. but eventually, yes, we want to work with them trying to win the small game, which is, their effort and energy about getting to the T, for example, mm-hmm. or volleying, for example, or playing at the front court um, or working on their length. Again, they'll tell me what those things are. Yep. And I want them to have a couple of physical goals that they're working on. And then, of course, I want them to have a mental goal or two that they're also 
paying attention to. After I have this whole conversation with them about goal setting, I then remind them that the mind chatter doesn't give a crap about anything that we just talked about for the past 45 minutes. <laughs> as far as the chatter is concerned, the second you don't make it go from 6'2 to 6'3 to 6'4, it's going to tell you this was a this was a stupid idea. You're never going to be able to get to the T in the way you want. Your volleys are never going to go right. So I, I remind them that, again, they show up to the court and their chatter shows up to the court. They want to work on effort and strategy. Their chatter is only interested in whether this outcome is going to work out for them or not. Mm -hmm. So I try to prepare them both for where to focus, but also to appreciate the sabotaging that the chatter is apt to do when things don't go according to plan. Does that Love make it. some sense? A hundred percent. I just sat here as a student absorbing that. That was that was oh. really cool. And um, I'm just going to like almost go back a couple of steps because <coughs> chatter, chatter is there. It's a good thing. It's built into us. It's this idea that it's protecting us. It's our it's our primeval brain, isn't it? It's, you know, fight, flight or freeze response. I think you talk about that in the book as well. So could you just frame that little bit up? Because, you know, when you welcome yeah. the chatter and actually thank it for being there, thank you for protecting me, that can really manage it at the same time, can't it? Yeah, I um, I sometimes sort of tell a quick story, and I'll I'll try to tell it really quick here. Just the, I try to take it outside of sports, which I think is powerful as well, and get them to see. Maybe I'll use a different example for this go around. Like if they were at a big party, um, and uh, they really wanted to go up to somebody and get to know them better, whether it's a guy, a gal, a friend, or a potential you know mate, um, that. Uh, and they've never spoken to that person before, but they really have wanted to get to know that person and they haven't gone up to that person before, that their mind is that there's, they want to go up to that person because they think that's the kind of person I really think I could get along with. But don't they notice that there's this other voice that's also shown up to the party mm -hmm. that says, what if she or he, you know, turns and walks away the second you say hello? What if, uh, what if they, um, you know, what if they look right at you and tell you to get out of there? What if their friends start laughing at the very fact that you're there? And I, I remind them that there's this other voice at play all the time that is interested in them not looking bad, not being judged, uh, not being, um, you know, the subject of, of negative evaluation, mm -hmm. um, not being embarrassed. And that that goes across all humans, I worry about that. You worry about that. We all worry about it. Um, and so the mind in that respect, Jesse, is trying to protect us from looking bad and screwing up mm -hmm. and having embarrassing, consequential results. And I say the same holds true at your next tournament where you want to just figure out how to put into play all the things you've been working on and give your best effort. Your chatter at the same time is trying to protect you and from the possible stakes. And when I write, I have a big whiteboard in my office that I use, um, huge one. And I often get us out of like the therapy looking chairs and I get sure. us into this sort of like workshoppy space, um, which I think is also an advantage. And I make things mm -hmm. really visual and I've got markers and and I write down all the things that they're telling me are at stake in the next tournament. 
looking bad, embarrassing, lowering my ranking, not getting recruited, disappointing my coach, disappointing my family, having my teammates being mad at me, blowing my reputation, losing my identity as a kick-ass athlete. I mean, the laundry list that I get, <clears throat> and I say, wow, look at what your chatter is up to. It is, it's not just worried about winning or losing. It's not just worried about playing the next point. Mm. And I said, I'll say to them that um, um, while these might be things that you're worried about, these are all things that are all tied to the outcome. Whether if you look bad or not means the result wasn't good. Whether you embarrass yourself or not means the result wasn't good. So yeah. your, your chatter is on duty. It's doing what it's supposed to do, which is warning you of possible threats to your ego. But you have more choice than you realize, you know, in how you manage it. And I'm going to teach you how to manage that voice so it doesn't manage you. Um, and part of that is is going, oh, there you go, right on cue, right at the worst possible time, <laughs> yep. your chatter will at, is apt to show up. Like a script from a movie, you show up and say, I think I got this tournament. I think I got this match. Your chatter goes, you said that last time. And then you go, okay, but this time it's different. I really think this is the one where I'm going to get over the hump. And your chatter goes, yeah, but what if, what if it isn't? And I get them, we go through in a kind of a, sometimes in a comical way, and if I could get them to laugh about it, yep. even better, mm -hmm. we'll write out what the chatter is going to say. And that very old script of them trying to get on top of their chatter, and but the chatter will always get the last word. So instead of fighting with it, we're going, we're just recognizing it's, a, it's it, that it's shown up on the scene, that of course it's there trying to protect us. But then we sort of tried to then move to that step of thanking it for sharing and then getting drilling down into things that really matter, like like squash mm. instead of the outcome of squash. Amazing. Wow. So well put. Such a great story. I really enjoyed that. I like the, how you brought that to life. And it reminds me also of, you know, when, when you when you're saying the stuff about our chatter protecting us and, and protecting our ego. Does it go back to, you know, back to our caveman days where if you're the lowest member of the tribe, you're an outsider, you know, you, you might not survive yeah. because you're all of a sudden, you're not worth anything. You're not adding anything to that tribe. And actually, if you're in the middle or near the top, you are higher valued. Is there a link there to that kind of that primeval brain about actually, we're going to be freezing outside of our cave if we're seen as this lowest member of the tribe? I, I suspect so. I suspect so. I do believe that those people who say that, uh, that um, that we always had to be vigilant also of like what was our surroundings back in primeval days and with saber-toothed tigers around the corner that you always had to be vigilant and there's always been a part of our brain where we've had to be hyper hyper vigilant. I do think now though some of this is situational though. Mm -hmm. I think it's I think it's biological, but I also think it's situational and that sport has become we've come to define ourselves by our by our results and our uh, our college, I, I really think so much of at least my clientele, my younger clientele, it, this all has to do with getting into college. I mean, I, uh, and I don't even think I'm exaggerating. I mean, for all the, because I just see, I tend to just see the very highly competitive kids, the mm -hmm. not from my area, but also from all over the country or or the world, and um, uh, uh. For those at least in the states who are trying to get into into school or university, um, uh, it's all about that 
for them. It's all about thinking that if they don't get into play at at Princeton or somewhere else, I, I you know, this mm. isn't a thing about Princeton. It's yeah, just yeah. the first school that came to mind, but a school of that stature, then they will have blown it all. And that, um, and I think that that environmental factor is a huge, a huge weight on the shoulders. And many of the athletes that I see are so competent. They're so impressive to me. They are these unbelievable students, um, not just athletes and they balance or try to balance so many things. I, many of them, I don't know how they yeah. did it. My, I have three daughters and I have one that went on to be a college athlete. She was sort of that way where I don't know how she did it. She performed at a very high level in her sport. She, she reached an academic um, level that, uh, you know, and a lot of these athletes can do it, but they, they come to see that school is a different animal. Mm-hmm. Because there is more under your control. Ultimately, you could stay up all night if you have to to finish the paper. And when you're taking the test, it's not like somebody's trying to scribble your answer out before you write yours down. Or you know, so there's less chatter, generally speaking. Generally yep. speaking, because there's less, there's more controllables mm-hmm. in the school environment. Makes sense. Makes sense. So even mm-hmm. though these they might be great students and great athletes, that's that piece about me teaching them how to be great competitors to appreciate. This isn't school. You can't use the same mindset for that squash match as you do for that that math test mm. because there's too many unknowns yep. in squash. Totally. Yeah, really, really well put. And this might lead us beautifully on onto the fourth point, which is basically the essence of your book, which is courage over confidence. And and something else, this might fit into this bit of the conversation. Positive thinking is a bit, I I get the sense very strong in your book that actually it, it's it's worthless in a way. There might be the odd time or place for it. But when we get to the, the fourth step, this courage over confidence, you know, because confidence itself can be quite a fluffy term and go, I've got to believe I've got to play like this. And I've got to look, you know, fake it till you make it which again, I used 15 odd years ago, 20 years ago when I was a player and actually it just is complete BS, isn't it? So thoughts on, on, on courage over confidence. Yeah. So um, I am not anti-confidence and I'm not anti-positive thinking like in some general sense, but again, the people who come talk to me aren't confident. They're not positive. So it's not as if I, if an athlete's feeling pretty good and they are telling themselves, to go out there and kick some butt and like put it all out on the line. And they believe what they're telling themselves that I'm all that they should be positive and they should be encouraging. So I don't want to give this idea that I'm against that. I have plenty of athletes who get to that point where they're like, you know what? I just told myself to go after it and like leave it all out there on the court and they believe it and they, and they go out and try to do it. But so it's not that I'm anti-positive or anti-confidence. It's just, I don't get athletes when they're positive and confident. I get mm-hmm. them when they're full of chatter and doubting themselves. And it's under those circumstances, I don't want them to try to be something they're not. And I tell them that they don't need to feel something that they're not feeling, that their issue isn't that they're not confident enough. By the way, who would be confident if you keep losing and you're playing against these high ranked players you keep getting destroyed. Like I wouldn't be confident either. I'm Mr. Psychologist. I'd be all down in the dumps too. Like totally. let's get real. Um, but what I need them to do is to learn how to better manage their doubts. Mm-hmm. And no one's taught them that yet. And, and that's one of the beautiful privileges I feel like of my job is I get to teach people 
How do you manage those doubts? Because they are loud and destructive. When Once we go through my methodology of working to manage those doubts, I tell them, you know, does, tell me whether you agree, but this is really an issue of being, of being courageous, it seems to me, because those doubts are flying around during warmups. You could try to be confident, but five seconds later, you doubt, you're, you know, you're doubt filled again. Mm-hmm. So is. I say to them, which I think is very, they grab it. Let's see this next match as an opportunity for us to be courageous here, because you can't be courageous except in the presence of doubt and fear. By definition, doubt always precedes courageous action. And confidence is a feeling and courage is a choice. And I go through a lot of that sort of distinction making in the book, which I like, uh, I think is helpful. And what would it mean to be courageous? I asked the athlete that. What do you think I even mean by courageous? Does that mean putting a cape on? What does that, what does that look like? You know, and eventually I tried to see if we could get to the place where they have the courage to stay focused on their goals, despite the barking in their ear of chatter saying, you're going to blow this again. Mm, You know, the courage um, to just to to not look at their parents out in the stands um, because every time they do, uh, even though it's so tempting, they do, they tend to get rattled, you know, the courage to go through their routine or ritual between each point. I mean, it could be a million different Mm, things. Yeah. Um, So I spend a lot of time getting them to stop wasting energy, trying to feel something that they're not, that confidence comes after you play well. Mm. You happen to win that first match and you, and you win. Now you've got a little confidence. You know what? My length was really, my length was really pretty darn good. You know what? I feel pretty good about my length. Now I think I've got it. And now you've got some confidence going to the next match. I'll, I'll say to them, I'll go, I'm getting out of your way now. Like cool. If yeah, I can yeah. get out of your way now, don't think chatter though is going to go and get out of your way <laughs> because the, the second your length isn't quite exactly like it was in the first match. Your chatter is going to go, Oh crap, you're blowing your length. So we, we, you know, we talk about how to anticipate that again. Mm. So courage over confidence becomes a mantra. I give them a wristband if they want to wear it. I give them stickers. I have them write something on their sneakers if they want on their racket, any way that they can remind themselves that in this next match, they don't need confidence. Um, uh, They need some other things. They need to be focused. Mm -hmm. I'll take a focused athlete over a confident one if I have a choice. They need to be focused. They need to be determined. And they need to try to sort of stick to the plan. Um, Confidence, shamanfidence. Love it, dude. Love it, love it, love it. I, I love like you really hit a hit a, hit something in me there. Courage is a choice, and confidence is a feeling. That's that's beautiful. That yeah. that really kind of brings it to because we're we're leaning into the controllables again. And the um, analogy metaphor, I don't quite know the difference. <laughs> well, those are, but it's the one where I think you talked about. I think it's in like or right at the end of the book where you talk about the skier just like you know putting your your skis, looking down the slope, and and going at it, or you know the bird running out of it, like flying out of the nest for the first time, type of thing. Yeah, I have, again, my own, if I was confident doing an Ironman competition, or I like to ski some dangerous stuff, if I waited for confidence to go down, I mean, I'd still be up there, you know, <laughs> yeah. I, 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 I can't see what's on the other side of those trees, and I turn, but maybe I fall, and thankfully I'm okay, and maybe I fall again. Now, when I go back up, I've got a little confidence, because I go, okay, I kind of know how this is going to play out. I know I got to slow down here, but I, and I got to speed up there. And I feel like I got a little bit more of a sense of controllables, as you're saying. But 
um, the, the best athletes that I've worked with across all sports are, are, have this relationship with their chatter where they, they don't see it as a sign that there's something terribly wrong and they ultimately don't spend a lot of energy and time fighting with it and beating themselves up for it and feeling like it's a noose around their neck. They, they just see it as, as part of the competition picture. Um, I always love Sean White, the snowboarder, um, uh, talking about, you know, um, of course, I mean, he, we don't, he doesn't use the term chatter, but he, of course he has full of doubts. And he says, I try not to bother them. So they don't try to bother me. He's like, I've got them 24 seven. I wake up thinking about these things. I get, I'm on the pit, I'm on the slope thinking about these things. It's, he's sort of like, like, that. give me a break. But for that. a lot of our young athletes, they think I'm, I'm not supposed to be feeling this way. Um, and I wish they weren't, but as we've talked about the stakes for some of these kids is so through the roof, the way their mind works mm. that of course they're, they're full of chatter. Mm. Yeah. I love that. And I, th I thought you were going to use another Sean white quote there, which was, um, I think it was, it was when he did that crazy, like it got his final gold medal, like got this jump that no one had ever expected him. And he basically got into the zone and his quote about the zone was, he said it was a combination of being really focused and also not giving a crap at the same time. I thought, I thought that yeah. was a beautiful like analogy because he's really there it like is. mentally, but he's actually, once he, once he goes down, he just doesn't care. It's like, I've just got to let go at this point. And that's, you know, we could probably have a whole podcast about zone and flow states and all that, but that, that's a real yeah. cool little quote from there. Yeah. I think it's a beautiful quote. And I mean, it sounds so simple, but of course it's so not simple. Mm -hmm. And that's what makes Sean White, Sean White, where there's plenty of other guys who might try those tricks um, who are coming up the ranks, but, but they can't simplify it in quite that same way because their mind is bl blasting at them. So mm. it's a beautiful quote. It really love is. It. Love it. And, and yeah, becoming a simplifier. It's a little, little statement. I'm using a lot of my language these days with my players. You know what? When you're in that heat of battle, become a simplifier. And, you know, that that's the key. Um, But listen, uh, Dr. Mitch, I hope we can maybe run through a few little quick um, examples if you're up for it. I've got a few little common ones that come up with me. I'm sure these come up with you a lot. Feel free to just let us know what you're thinking. Um, So first one that comes to mind, um, an athlete is in the lead during a match, but one small error gets them spiraling and losing all the momentum. Any any solutions or quick tips that, that athletes can take from that? Yeah, I think the first thing that always comes to mind in these situations is hopefully we've planned for this before the match has ever started. Part of what at least I see my job is to be is to have like, you know, the mistake plan in place. Not like if you happen to make a mistake when you have a lead, but what are you going to do when you make a mistake when you have when you have the lead? In your example, did they have the lead? Is that what you yes, said? Yes, yeah. So they, they've got the yeah. lead. They, they for, Let me just use squash because it's the most common one to me. They are one love, nine, six up. This exactly happened to one of my players the other day. One love, nine, six up. She lost the point to go seven, nine, a bit of controversy. She lost 11, nine, 11, one, 11, one. Just couldn't even get it back and just completely spiraled. So, and no matter how much she tried to tell herself, stay in the moment, be positive, do all this. It just couldn't happen. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Sometimes it's too late. So I get that. I mean, mm -hmm. we're, we're at that point, they're just, they're, they're frantic and they're and they're not really playing squash anymore. They're playing like just get me the heck off the court type of type of squash. Mm. So I think the, the first thing that always comes to mind is can we anticipate that very scenario? Can you run as many scenarios? You can't run through every scenario, but can you run through as many of scenarios um, as possible? And of course, with with her, I'm sure you're now going to go through with her like, 
okay, this might not be the first time you're going to have, you know, a game lead and then somebody comes storming back because, of course, the person who's behind has that feeling like Sean White. Well, I really have nothing to lose at this point. I'm already on my way to losing two games. I might as well start blowing it out. Yep. And if they play a couple of good points, your your player starts to think, oh, oh my gosh. So mm-hmm. anticipating these scenarios ahead of time. Um, I think that um, um, what I hear a lot of players tell me is that those moments, they really want to try to get back to what their game plan is. In other words, if they don't really know what their game plan is going in, they sure as heck aren't going to be able to think of it when they're under great duress. So I want to make sure he or she in this situation knows um, exactly what their two let's, I, I tend to use to have them have two and I'm talking about not the mental part. I'm talking about the physical game plan, like what their, what their aspirations are. And then as you probably have a lot of players tell me that they try to then simplify it after that, mm-hmm. which is they try to hit a little bit higher on the wall. I heard Paul Asiante talking about that talking about with you kind of going back to some basics. So those are the types of things that come to mind. I don't have anything necessarily mm, brilliant to say. No, 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 that, that's, that's all I need sometimes. That experience like that hopefully is a great teacher for that young person who the next time she's in a situation like that feels like um, she's been there before. Mm-hmm. Um, um that's the first thing that comes to my mind is the pre-match right. planning. Really, mm, love that. Yeah. It's like uh, little quotes I'm always trying to use with with players. The John Dewey quote: "We don't learn from experience; we learn from reflecting on that experience." And actually, that's kind yeah. of similar to what you like you kind of saying there, which I love. Uh, and yeah. it leads me into like a little kind of side um, bar here: visualization. Um, a lot of the athletes I speak or when I've interviewed some of the top players. Ali Farag, James Wilshop, they talk about scenarios. They're continually running plays in their mind. They bring the emotions up. Yeah. They talk about the problem and the solution. Um, where does visualization sit within your practice and, and getting athletes to, to work on this? Yeah, it's a good question. I decided not to put it in the book, but not because I don't believe in it 100% and use it 100%. So I tend to see, I almost made it a step. I mean, that's how important I see it. But I just chose not to but Simplify. so hmm. yeah I, but, but that doesn't mean it's not important and yeah. i don't want you, anyone to think like this book is the only thing that i do there's plenty of other things and visualization I, I don't know if you're like this but i'm like this i visualize everything i had hmm. this podcast visualized hmm. before i got on with you today because i saw i intentionally watched something else that you did so i knew your face i knew the sound of your voice you were kind enough to give me some ideas about what some topics we were so I'm rolling and visualizing this podcast. Um, uh, naturally, it's not like I had to like think to do like, oh, I should do it. I just, mm-hmm. I do it. Um, I listen to other podcasts and other people who do our jobs. And I I try to, I hear the question and I visualize what I would answer if I was on that podcast. <clears throat> and um, uh, so I'm constantly doing it myself. And a lot of athletes, as you said, Amanda Sobe talks a ton about it, that she sees that or she uh, as one of the, the most important things that she does mentally to get ready for matches. Mm-hmm. So, yes, once we've kind of got a game plan here and talking about chatter, we will visualize, including visualizing the chatter coming in and telling them all the things that they're doing wrong and all the reasons and like visualizing that scenario that you just played out where they're thinking, oh, crap, I'm about to blow this again, just like I did last match, you know, because mm-hmm. a lot of that 
blowing it like your young client had isn't even just about that match. It could even be about those matches beforehand or that week of practice where they lost a practice match to somebody who came storming back. So we're trying to visualize being in the now and letting go of the past and working through those mistakes. And, and um, so anyway, yes, the long story mm. short is love it. It's a very big part of what I do. Some, some of our athletes do it naturally mm-hmm. and some we do it here in my office and some I give sort of homework to that they do it, you know, leading up to matches. Right. Awesome. Thank, 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 Is that how, you, how do you do it, Jesse? Yeah, a, a range of things. I, I um, follow a guy called Andrew Huberman. Um, he's professor of neuroscience at Stanford. He's got some amazing podcasts. If you've, have you come across his work yet? Yes, yes, yeah, absolutely. And, and his, absolutely. Um, an episode, probably three episodes ago, was ve- a visualization and mental imagery. It's really worth the two hours worth of all the neuroscience around visualization. So, yeah, I've slightly changed a few things I'm getting my athletes to do. This is more closed, discrete skills. I'm going a bit off topic, but I'll just go, I'll make this quick. And um, what they found that the science in the last couple of years, especially, is finding 15 seconds on, 15 seconds off of one closed, discrete skill and repeating between 50 and 75 times. So basically, high interval training for your mind. They're saying that's one of the quick, like the best ways to start to learn a closed discrete skill. That's not necessarily scenario based, but I'm actually slightly reinterpreting it for scenarios. Now I'm going, right, you are nine, seven up and you've lost that next point. What's your response, right? Run that play. How many times can you run in 15 seconds? Pause on off. So my methods changed yeah. really recently. I'm just based a little bit on the Andrew Huberman stuff, all based on scientific journals, not some fluffy stuff, but yeah, it's a really good episode. If you're interested in it. That's interesting. In a somewhat related way, although it's a little different, I had done, I've been at a conference where the Canadian Olympic Committee talked a lot about using video with their athletes, where they would have their athletes video themselves, or you would video the athlete mm-hmm. talking about these scenarios on video. I'm mm-hmm. up nine, seven, and I lose the next point. <clears throat> and then the next point after that, um, uh, I also lose. And you have them videoing their how they're going to language it. They do it out loud though. Nice. Languaging how they're going to sort of manage that onslaught of their opponent coming back. And, and I've done a little bit of that. And I, I think, like and that. then had the athlete watch that kind of in its own sort of form of mm. visualizing. <clears throat> I'm sorry. Give me one sec just to get a go cough drop here. Go for it. Go for it. Take <laughs> um, your time. Um, and I'll, I'll cut this bit out anyway, so we can just riff for a little bit. Um, yeah, that that's really cool. I, I love, you know, my early visualizations, this won't go in the recording anything, but it's just more, they were slightly longer, you know, maybe I'd do like an eight to 10 minute audio based on, right, you, you, you this is the beginning of your match. You see your serve and, you know, your first few points and what Huberman stuff was actually, you know, slightly poo-pooing that saying we can't actually take ourselves to that point, which, which is fine. Like, again, I'm, I'm here to learn, but actually a lot of the players that I use really like those. They, they really feel that they, they, they just put their audio in before the match in their 15 minutes, they run the play. They go, all right, I'm really clear. I see myself in the first person doing it. They maybe see a bit of third person, but they see themselves doing it. So that's how it's been in the past, but I'm trying this little 15 second on 15 second off stuff now a little bit as well. To, to run I'll some be plays. curious to, to tell me what you find I, mm. along your same lines. The athletes really like making art like it when I make audios for them. Yeah. I tend to not make them as long as you do, but I tend to use maybe like a three or four minute reminders slash visualization. I tend to not mm. make it as long, Yeah. but nice. the feedback I get as well is they, they like, and I always say to them, look, if you don't like it, just turn it off. But, yeah. um, 
but it's kind of like a summary of what we've talked about mm. with some visualization mm. as part of it. And I want them to see it as much as relaxation yes, as yes. anything else, which I, that's, I think how I think about it at least yep. mm -hmm. is, can I just turn the knob down a point or two, you know, if they're like a nine, can I get them to a seven yeah, in yeah, terms yeah. of breath, doing some breathing and, you know, slowing themselves down a little bit, but like you, I'm always, you know, okay. with one client, I'm thinking, okay, this is the thing I want to try mm -hmm. with the next mm -hmm. one. I'm trying something else. So like you, like anyone who does our work, I'm always trying to tailor it mm -hmm. to who the person is. And some people say semi-audios every time. Some people are like, no, I want to write it down. And I do have them take notes in my office. Mm. I do have them or encourage them to rewrite them. With like what they think is important before the match. Not just write them down verbatim, but like, again, what they've seen on my whiteboard and they think is important. Totally trying to write those things down. So, so for some of my athletes, they find that's immensely helpful mm. for others. It's more hearing it. Yeah, totally. And yeah, it's, it's then you getting to know your athlete at that deeper level, isn't it? That, that athlete centered approach. So um, listen, I do want to respect your time. I know you've got a client coming up, but I've got one or two more little questions. Are you good for that? Sure, <laughs> Amazing. Thank you. Yeah. This has been super insightful yeah. and I've just been here as a student, like I said, absorbing. So using another quick example, again, we've referenced this maybe a bit earlier and I think this is a huge one. Um, comparison, comparison to competitors and rivals before and also during matches. You know, this is where the chatter can probably be at its highest. Again, referencing college and all the stresses and strains of that. Um, any any tips and tools to try and and quieten down the comparison side of things? Yeah, I first want them to know there's no way they won't compare. In other words, everyone compares themselves to everybody else. It's only natural. Um, it's what you do with the comparison that matters most. And um, um, and I do have some athletes that are terrible at this. I mean, they really, I it strikes me how much they feel like they live in the shadows of so many other athletes, even though they've, you'd like to want them to think that they've made a name for themselves mm -hmm. in their own right. So part of it is getting them to understand that I understand that they're not gonna not compare, but um, but asking them what, what, whether that, I, I sort of see that as a part of the chatter yeah. that because the chatter isn't interested in the chatter is interested in how bad they're going to look vis-a-vis -vis somebody else in someone else's eyes. So I put it in the chatter category. I put it in that bucket. So when we run through all of the statements that chatter is going to say, what if I lose to so-and-so? What if I'm not better than so? I put it in that, what if I'm not better than so-and-so? What if she does better than me? Okay. Mm. We put it in the chatter category and then sort of how to try to handle it that same way, which is you're going to have that thought, what if she wins and I don't? And we need to get good at sort of saying, mm -hmm. um, I knew that thought was going to come. That's one of a host of thoughts that are going to come, including what if I blow my match? But they're all, as you said, yeah, external, not, Mm. action action oriented mm. and that's and that's why i resonated so much with your book and you know hopefully anyone listening is already pressing the kind of buy me now button because there's the, like the model fits so many great scenarios so many common questions that keep coming up again and again and again and i got the feeling you wrote the book because to answer a lot of those at the same time as well as like there we go people like <laughs> get stuck in with us uh yes i find it fits in so many scenarios um and 
Um, it fits even with the parents who are having their own bout of chatter. And when they tend to get very chattery, they tend to over control. So they try to start telling their athlete what to do and not to do. I want them to understand that's because they're anxious or they have chatter themselves. And so sometimes I'm having to work with them about working with their own chatter. But anyway, I know you have a few more questions. So I'll let you go. Cool. So we'll have one more example. And I've got a bit of a cool personal question, which I think hopefully you might like that I haven't uh, teed you up on. Feel free to not answer it, but I think you'll like it. Um, so for me, fear of failure, that's that's a big one. Um, again, thoughts on rationalizing this catastrophizing voice that, you know, oh, I always lose to this person. Again, I can imagine it fits straight into that model. Um, but yeah, any any initial thoughts about the fear of failure and catastrophizing voices that are that are hitting? Yeah, I try I think the best way I can answer it is I try to get them to see that they are bigger than their chatter. So why they're flying to San Francisco or the UK to play in such and such tournament. So why, why are we bothering with all this? Like, mm -hmm. um, what is this all really about? Because, you know, you may not win. You may, you might lose in the first round and go into the plate and come home early and, you know, have dinner, you know, just with your parents and not be happy. Why are we doing all this? And, I'll spend a good amount of time having them remind themselves why they're doing it. And we'll write it down and we'll put it on the board, but I'll put the fear of failure part of it. Um, that there's this other voice that isn't really, uh, that is so scared of not winning that it questions whether this is all sort of worth it or not. Mm -hmm. And so I will put the, their voice and their why and why we're why we're doing this and that fear of failure is under the chatter umbrella as well only interested in not the journey but is only interested in whether you're going to reach the destination or not mm -hmm. and of course the fun in sport is in the challenge of trying to see whether this is worth it or not you know i'll sometimes joke with these athletes i'll say you know I'm going to put a phone call into the San Francisco tournament director and I'm going to let you play. You're, you're in U 17. I'm going to work something out where you're going to play against the U like what nine or 10 or something. <laughs> and, but you're still going to get credit for the U 17. Okay. And I'm totally going to hook you up for like your next few JCTs. Let's keep it between us. I've got some hookups <laughs> for you. That's cool. And let's say you go, and you go to San Francisco and then you go to Cleveland and then you go to Philadelphia, you freaking win three tournaments in a row. Okay. It's against a nine-year-old and you're 17, but you're going to get credit for the U 17s. Your ranking's going to explode. I'm like, isn't this great? Isn't this exactly what you would want? Is this not some perfect scenario? And as you can imagine, Jesse, after a while and mm -hmm. some teasing about it, they're like, no, that sort of sucks. And I'm like, well, what do you mean? You told me you wanted to win. I I set it up so you could win. And you're winning. In fact, you don't even have to, like, you could stay up late. You I could eat, it. like, crappy food. You could play with your other hand. You could just win. Mm -hmm. Eventually, eventually, exactly. of course, the punchline of this is we wind up having them get to a place where they realize if there's no challenge, then there's really no purpose in all of this. Mm. And I go, wait, you didn't tell me you wanted a challenge. You told me you wanted to get your ranking up. Mm. I, I have, I took care of you in that 
regard. Love it. Oh, well, so what you really want is a challenge. You know, eventually we get to what's really behind it. I try to get them to connect with it. And of course, the only way to really experience the challenge is to play against other good players in your age group. But what will come along with that is this other voice that's not interested in, what, in your why and what you want. It's interested in the fact that you could blow it all and that's chatter and we go through mm. all of it that way. Long-winded Amazing. answer, I'm sorry, but that's, that's brilliant. sometimes how I'll frame it. Yeah, love it. have like a little it. fun with it. Mm, a meaningful struggle like we're all going to struggle but is it a meaningful struggle i like that so um yeah, in, exactly. in closing you uh, you that that picture behind your head has fascinated me because i love the story behind it so you got roger bannister there completing the four minute mile um i think i know why you've got that picture framed um but just for the listeners that might not know part of the story and also what happened immediately after that in the next kind of month or so yeah. thoughts well no before he after he broke it i guess it's better the better story because mm -hmm. no one had broken it up until then but after he broke it I don't have the number off the top of my head. Do you have the number off the top of your head? No, but it was, something, it was something like, I think it was like nine or 10 in the next three months, something along those lines that just completely crushed that, that like it just was the floodgates opened, yeah. didn't it? Yeah, yeah. And that no one really thought it was possible until, until except for him. And then once they saw that it was, it was possible, they realized that they hadn't really tapped into everything that they really were capable of. And along those lines, that's exactly what I want my athletes to see is that you have no idea what you're capable of. And that's really why you want to continue to play these tournaments. I mean, you don't have to play these tournaments. What it's really about for you is often discovering how good you can be. And I really want them to connect with that because that's often lost in the shuffle here. Mm. It really gets lost. Uh, there's this other voice that doesn't give a crap about how good you can be. It's only interested in whether you're going to blow it or not. But that's really what you're doing in San Francisco or the UK or in Cleveland. And just like Bannister, like <clears throat> who discovered how what he was capable of. And that opened up the doors for all these other people to discover it. I want my athletes to, yes, to, it's a fitting uh, thing to finish on. I want them to discover what they're capable of. And I tell them, you have no idea especially now when you add the mental game to everything you've been doing physically, the, oh, this is really exciting. Let's anything about discovery. It wants to shut everything down. Mm, totally. Well said. And yeah, a great, great final message there. So listen, um, Dr. Mitch Green, you've been an absolute superstar turning up after COVID first person you've seen since highly. Thank you. This yes. has been an insightful chat. So I'd like to close off with um, where can, where can people find you? Can you signpost people to your website, your practice? Where could people look for you if they want to see yeah. if you are some more? I think the two best places would be to my website, which is greensite.com, G-R-E-E-N-E. P-E-S-Y-C-H, there's an E at the end of green.com. And my Instagram is probably the thing I'm most active on, mm -hmm. which is Green Psych, G-R-E-E-N-E-P-S-Y-C-H. If you could find me there, then you could find me on Facebook and other places, and you can email me from there. And I could be interviewing you the next time, and you could be telling me about what you do so I can learn. So <laughs> I, I'm... You know, hopefully we could see this as the start of some future collaborations. Oh, I would love that. I think, you know, we, we connected really nicely here today. And listen, a final call to action. Where can people get your book? Where's the best place for that book? I'll put it in the show notes also, but but where can people go right away? Thank you. I think Amazon.com is the best place right now. There's the uh, Kindle version and, of course, the soft cover version. Uh, in the next month, once my COVID brain and nose clears up, I'm going to be mm -hmm. doing an audio book. Oh, nice. uh, or reading the audiobook. So 
If you're interested in that, you'll have to wait a few months. But for now, please go to Amazon and you can find it there. Thank you. Awesome. Dr. Mitch Green, you've been a superstar. Good luck with the rest of your day. I look forward to catching up with you soon as well. Thank you, Jesse, for your time. I really appreciate the invitation. Take care. Bye-bye.